Father, I do pray now as we come to your word that there would be fruit and there would be joy and that there would be peace, there would be provocation, that there would be proving for everybody listening, proof internally witnessed of the genuineness of our discipleship before you. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. This is Nick Franks speaking, if you don't know who I am. My wife, Mary, and I run this podcast. We've been running it for about two years. And uh, you can find lots of in other episodes and so forth. Online or go to firebrandnotes.com forward slash give if you want some more information about us as a couple, what we're doing, that kind of thing. We're just concluding a long study of the book of 1 Corinthians by entering this final chapter, chapter 16. Let me just read the whole chapter to you and then I'll deal effectively half of it today with some thoughts under the um, the kind of banner of the church of his preparation. That's what I'm entitling this today, the church of his preparation with a focus on international, interdependent and faithfully despised. Those are characteristics, I think, of the early church and the church that's being prepared for the return of the Lord. This is part 57 of this teaching series through 1 Corinthians entitled City of Temples. So plenty of other episodes should you wish to study sequentially through the whole book. We're going to be going into the book of John next after this in the next week, well, the next month or so entitled in a new series, Look at the Lamb, working our way slowly and methodically and joyfully, I hope. I hope it will be refreshing to do that through the words of Jesus. So this is 1 Corinthians 16. I'll read the whole chapter, as I say, and then deal with roughly the first 11 verses today. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. 
Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think this chapter provides a fascinating insight into the early church, doesn't it? If you read it, and it's that's why I've read it all in at once rather than just in sections. I'm going to go through um, from verse 12 next week, really, I think, and spend potentially a third week focusing on just the, the final salutation, as it were, of Paul. Um, but it's a fascinating insight, I think, into the early church. But I think it's also f- a glimpse of the church that's being prepared for the return of the Lord. So that's why I'm calling this the church of his preparation. I think it's a great contrast reading through all the different elements of this chapter. It's a great contrast to the the current sense of so many disciples, faithful disciples, of one of isolation. Those who have been in our language conscripted by conscience into and away from the mainstream of business as usual, denominational church, unwilling to change, unwilling to repent, thinking that everything's fine just because you've had a board level organisational review. But in fact, nothing, nothing spiritual has changed, nothing at the heart level has changed. A conscription of conscience away from lukewarmness, you know, and so... I think this church that we're seeing from the early times of the apostolic roots, sort of reminiscent thinking just of Jeremiah's emphasis on the old, the ancient paths and the restoration of that, the reformation of that, the, in a sense, the ultimate realization of that. So it's a glimpse of what God did and is doing, I think, again, a bit like the principle that I think is a biblical principle, a gospel principle, which is that when something that is broken is healed or fixed, it's better, stronger than it was previously. That's true of the physical body. I've mentioned this before. If a bone is broken in the natural, once it's healed through the process of God-created healing, restorative work, you know, it's stronger than it was before. Can we imagine the church presented in splendor at the end of the age when we read the early church, not not of the early church, not just to kind of hark back to times, the golden era that was, but rather to see it as a precursor to that which will be at the end of the age, in one sense, in an unimaginable, incomparable splendor, presented as a bridegroom, spotless and pure, ready for the bridegroom. I think that's how we're supposed to read this, not just romantically, So I'll talk here just briefly today about the international, interdependent, faithfully despised elements of what I'm seeing here, both for the early church that was, and as I've just said, in that paradigm of what is currently being prepared. Um, And I'll return to those kind of three components of international stroke, global, interdependent and despised faithfully in just a minute. I want to make a quick side note here because Aquila and Priscilla pop up in verse 19 if you flick, if you just look at your Bible there, you'll see Aquila and Priscilla. If you read other passages in Acts 18 and Romans 16, you'll have 
there's a number of times that this couple are referred to. And I want to just flag something, and, and only as a side note, because it's worthy of a separate session. And we're, Mary and I are going to do that separate session on Aquila and Priscilla in the next week or two. So keep your eyes on the podcast for that, because we've done we've done content in recent months on both YouTube and in the podcast here about the the sent the very very important issue of male and female God made them. In other words, this whole thing of egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Um, and in short, egalitarianism is is the belief in Christian circles that there is no fundamental difference between men and women that they're completely equal and completely um, similar in terms of their roles and functions in the home and in the church, that kind of thing. Complementarianism believes, of course, that men and women are equal. Women, are, Of course, men and women are equal, but that there are different roles and functions both within the home and within the church. And so this issue of Aquila and Priscilla has caught my eye here today, and I want to deal with this well. We, Mary and I have talked about it, and we're going to do a separate session on the importance of this um, reflecting on the early church as was, the apostolic roots of of um, the post-resurrection era, but also in terms of the church being prepared, the church of the preparation, as it were. I think this issue of um, Aquila and Priscilla point to something very important. And of course, as is often the way, um, truths are often latched onto by the devil to try and hamstring something that is critically important. And I think that's what happens within egalitarianism. Um, and I'm going to, so as I say, Mary and I as a couple will deal with Aquila and Priscilla. That's just a side note. So let's go to the text. Verse one, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. This is reminiscent, if you remember, flick back to, if you offer your notes, chapter 7, verse 2, or thereabouts, and similar, at the beginning of both chapters 7 and 8, you have this now concerning phrase, which is Paul's recurring um, indication that he's referring back to questions raised by the Corinthian church themselves for Paul to address. And if you remember in chapter 7, there were the issues of um, sexual immorality, sexual relations, marriage relationships, that kind of thing, matters... Matters in the home. Then you had matters in the public sphere. So, for example, at the beginning of chapter 8, you see the same phrase now concerning food to- offered to idols. So that's matters in the public social sphere relating to food, sharing communal gatherings, that kind of thing. And that's really, I think, to, to do with the demonic and the spiritual realm. So you had matters in the home, such as sex and marriage and so on. Ultimately, it's to do with the devotion to the Lord. Then matters in the public sphere, socialising, food, all of that, which was Paul revealing the demonic realms, the the heavenlies, and then matters of the heart relating now to money. Um, He's relating, he's dealing with this last for a good reason, I think. Um, He could, could of course, dealt with this earlier, couldn't he? He could have dealt with the collection for the saints in chapter 7, but he, he chose to do it now perhaps because of 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not that money is per se, but the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. 
So you, Paul starts off now dealing with this issue that, the, that clearly the Corinthians have raised themselves. So they've essentially raised to Paul these issues of sex, food, and now money. What does this tell us? Well, I think this is it's telling us where the, the, where the thoughts of the church were, the, the concerns that they had, the areas of tension, the areas of conflict, the areas of cost, the cost of discipleship. And looking rightly for for spiritual leadership and wisdom about that, just just on a resource level, I can recommend Paul Tripp's book *Sex and Money*, entitled em, uh, subtitled em, *Empty Pleasures, Satisfying Grace*. And Paul really uh, Tripp, Paul Tripp in his book there, he kind of deals with some of these key um, standout areas of humanity, you know, and that's what Paul is essentially dealing with here. But it's it gives us further insight into. I suppose the early church as a whole, but also Paul as a leader and the way that he was seeing this um, impressive, very powerful spread of the church through different countries. And, um, you know, there's, an, there's the verse, isn't there, in another part of the book here that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of power. And it's power that we're thinking about as we witness this church having spread in the way that it did through all the different nations, through all these different itinerant missionary trips, not just of Paul, but of other apostles as well. And also then imagining something similar happening in a very different national, international landscape today and in the future from henceforward. But similarly, it's power that we are praying for, isn't it? It's, it's power that we're looking for in terms of gospel witness and gospel impact. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, um, so you were also to do. So this this is this is Paul saying, giving some, I suppose, in a similar way to the way that he gave orders for worship and that kind of thing. This worship, giving, collection is part of, of the worship of the church, but that there should be some order to it. What is the... What is the order to that? Well, verse two, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Clearly, there's something going on here. There's a collection for the saints in verse one. What is that? Well, I'll try and mention that in a minute. And secondly, his condition or order for that. Why didn't Paul want any collection when he came? Well, I think it's because of... That reality, and I've just read in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the piercing effect of many pangs is directly linked there from Paul to Timothy, who we'll see in a minute, who crops up at the end of this chapter, as being a potentially huge distraction from, from things that are more important. Paul had a particular burden for the poor. I'll show you that in just a second. But what was more important than than that uh, offering or collection for the saints is biblical faithfulness, the actual faithfulness of the stewards, the, of disciples. Um, there was an occasion I remember once being in a large church in in uh, the north of England where in God's providence I spent a long time being formed and shaped and indirectly shaped from different things and there was a big um a big seeker sensitive event put on 
I think it was might have been at Christmas or something, and it was this big event. Everybody was encouraged to bring friends and family to. It was this kind of all-rise event for people to attract people to church via. And I remember sat there at the time just thinking, this is not bad, this is quite good. You know, when there was some kind of drama put on or whatever, there was some kind of gospel presentation. And I knew that the the church was rammed full of different people, different guests, whatever. And then out of the blue, one of the one of the lads who was one of the leaders jumped up to take an offering. And my heart my heart sank. Every instinct in me at the time was this is wrong. This is not appropriate. This is not the time for you to be interrupting what's going on to take an offering. You've attracted people here to this event as advertised as a free event and now you're putting a collection basket in front of people midway through presenting the gospel. What the heck are you doing? Profound foolishness to do that. And I think I think that's probably why Paul said this in verse 2. Um, so that they'll... He gives a he gives a kind of prescriptive way of going about providing for this collection for the saints in verse one that everybody, in other words, on the Sunday of every week, that was the Jewish first day of the week. Well, Saturday was the Sabbath in Jewish terms, but to be distinct from that, to mark it as a distinctive Christian witness of the resurrection, it would have been a Sunday. Every every Sunday, put something aside, prepare, have that worshipfully prepared, so that. In verse 2, there will be no collecting when I come. Why? Well, because I think the focus on money and collections that would have been obstructive to salvation, potentially obstructive to discipleship, just as it was on the occasion that I've just recounted to you where I felt it was obstructive to salvation. You might think, well, it's just an incidental element that's not very well planned of a meeting, but I think the devil is often in the detail of that to prevent people who might have begun to entertain thoughts of eternity or of suddenly this bucket full of pressure. Do I need to pay? Oh, I haven't got any money. What do I do? I'm not prepared. I thought it was free. I didn't think there was a charge. Is anyone looking at me? Is this an obligation? You know, obstructive, distracting to salvation. I think that's probably why Paul's wisdom was what it was. Do you remember earlier in this book we're studying 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul had said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Stewards being found faithful doesn't look like putting money pots in front of potential disciples as they're considering the gospel. And I think the principle of that would have been the same for discipleship, immaturity, immature disciples who need to focus on teaching, who need to focus on what Paul is saying. They don't need to be thinking about doing a collection. So wise up, church leaders, wise up people leading meetings like that. Paul Paul had a different wisdom Thinking about what I was just saying there about the international and interdependent early church that we're seeing from that early apostolic era and, and imagining or envisaging rather for the decades ahead. 
Let's think just about what we're seeing in this text here in terms of the international, just this the startling mobility of this church. You know, you see five different Roman provinces mentioned in this chapter, Galatia, Judea, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. It's amazing to think of this, the mother church, so to speak, without wanting to sound too Catholic, you know, the, the HQ, in other words, the, the base, the hub of activity in Jerusalem. But then all these other places that are referenced in this chapter as an insight into this early church, Galatia, Judea, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. And what was going on in the Roman, the Greco-Roman world, if you, if you think of, again, what was this early church like, what might this help us to think or imagine for the future? I think of the sheer span of Roman roads and the way that they'd facilitated this mobile traveling, the way, the penetration of the gospel into all these different countries, this international movement. Well, the Roman roads, you know, the devil's on a leash and Caesar may have been doing all this for his glory, but actually look at the way that it facilitated the spread of the gospel, the growth, the building up of the church in agape and love. And the principle that we should be reminded of for today to be encouraged that whatever powers may be on the earth, however antichrist they are, that the devil is always on a leash. There would have been Roman legions, meaning that travel for the church, all the different people, the couples, the married couples, you know, the leaders, various different leaders, the travel would have been mostly safe. Again, a facilitation of the spread of the gospel through very practical, pragmatic means. There was also a very effective Roman postal system. Again, means of communication. How did that play into the early spread, the snowballing of the church? How how might that affect things in the future, whether or not there is a, any cyber attacks or whatever? If there is another lockdown, if there is any, you know, would, would the internet continue to be on? What kind of impact would it have on our communities, on our communications, if we didn't have internet, what would we do? But back back in the early church, you know, there would have been that, again, the use of the Roman postal system. And similarly, Roman equivalents of hotels or hostels along the way, which again would have facilitated travel, which would have been very different, very, very much, um, it would have taken a lot longer, wouldn't it, to have travelled the same distance, and so therefore more nights on the road, more nights travelling, that kind of thing. So the the travelling of this, the, this international mobility of the church was on the Lord's terms, not on the Roman terms, not on the not on the powers that be terms, but on the Lord's terms. Deo volente, the Lord as the Lord wills, Lord willing. Look at verse seven that we've just read. For I do not want you to see, sorry, for I do not want to see you now in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. There's that permission there. Um, Prior says, the vision and dedication of men and women, married couples, businessmen, and missionaries produced an an international church which took full advantage of the situation. What would it look like today for us? Men and women, the church, being prepared for the Lord's return with vision, not perishing without vision, but 
fruitful with vision? What would it look like to take full advantage of the situation that we're in? I don't know, just off the top of my head, advantage of the use of the kind of thing I'm doing now, digital media, live streaming, pulling people together from isolated postcodes via live events online, that kind of thing. But it's it's the vision and dedication of men, women, married couples, businessmen and missionaries taking advantage of that situation that Pryor highlights that helped me think of, again, we'll do more on this in a separate session, but Aquila and Priscilla and Paul. Aquila and Priscilla were a, were a married couple. Aquila was a Jew and they'd come f- um, he'd come along with his wife from Rome, from Italy, and Paul had sought them out and, long story short, they ended up ministering together for a long time. They travelled around together. They actually relocated together a couple of times. You can read about it in Acts 18. And they... One of the things that I just love thinking about is the is the fact that they were they'd set up a business together. So they were both both Aquila and Priscilla and Paul were tent makers or leather professionals. You know, they would have probably made more than just tents. But either way, they had a shop, they had a business. And you imagine the evangelism that would have gone on in their little shop together, the powerful conversations that would have gone on. You know? So this this whole thing of taking full advantage of the situation would have included that kind of entrepreneurial way of evangelizing. I mean, how cool is that as a thought of having, I don't know, a coffee shop? Say, say you set up a coffee shop with some people who've got money, they've got the capital, and you set it up to produce quality coffee, but at the same time for it to be a hub of of evangelistic activity, not the kind of evangelistic activity that's trying to funnel people into a denomination to de-radicalize them, but rather the kind of hub of activity that's there to be radicalized by the Holy Spirit to then go on and be trained and discipled in the things and the ways of the kingdom, just like Aquila and Priscilla on one occasion had to take the Apostle Apollos aside, who'd only known about the baptism of John, and they had to educate him, teach him from the Bible about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know? So it, it just is a wonderful way of thinking about the early church and what, again, what would it look like today for us to be taking full advantage? That's really the burden of Paul, wasn't it? You know, he'd referred in verse one of our passage today as I directed the churches in Galatia. So if you were to read through the book of Galatians, you won't see a direct reference to offering a collection in that same way as in our passage today. But what you will see is Paul detailing what happened to him after Acts 9 and his conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul took himself off to Arabia for three years, returned to Jerusalem only after that period of um individual personal separation from the mainstream, if you like. He he felt that was interesting, isn't it? Paul didn't go straight to Jerusalem to see Peter and John and James and others. He went he went off to Arabia. Now there's significance to the location for that, but the principle being that he then came back to Jerusalem at a subsequent date. And if you read in Galatians through the book there, you'll know that's when he was offered quote unquote the right hand of fellowship from Peter, eventually who'd seen Paul 
bearing in mind that Paul would have been known as a persecutor, a prolific persecutor of the church. And so there was that process of him coming into the fold, so to speak, the apostolic fold, and Peter and the others recognizing the calling on Paul's life, the transformation of his life, the legitimacy, the genuineness of him. And in verse 18, sorry, in chapter 2, verse 9 to 19, um, you've got this little passage here where he details that. And in verse 10, Paul mentions, and this is the reference, I think, in the book of Galatians to to our ver- first verse today about the collection, and um, is that the right hand of fellowship from the church in Jerusalem there was with the proviso that they that he remembered the poor. And Paul says in verse 10 of Galatians 2, only they, they being the apostles, the, the, the central church, asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the signet, signature burden of Paul was to remember the poor. And I think that's what we're seeing Paul finish this chapter on and this book on by flagging. Again, the principles that we're seeing in the early church and I think we should be thinking about for the church to come, the one that's being prepared right now, is this whole thing of everything being laid at the apostles' feet, that mentality of my house isn't my own, these possessions aren't mine, they're just things that I've been blessed with. You know, in Acts Four, we see this as, a, I think, a very important part of the future church. Acts 4, 34 and 35, where Luke records, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do you, lo- do you, an- loan- do you own land? or houses, or other capital, if you're listening to me, I've got no doubt that within there's so much money, so much wealth and resource tied up within the church, not only in buildings, but mentalities that sit on tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds for for what, quote-unquote, a rainy day, and all the while it could be directly being used through spirit-filled, word-saturated initiatives to win people to Christ. You know, I don't know how much money is tied up in this one city of Edinburgh alone in church buildings, millions of pounds. It's sick. It's a deep, deep idolatrous sickness that we ooh and are at when we take pictures in city centres because it looks pretty and we see the nice skylines and we put pictures up on our wall of it. But actually what it's representing is the opposite of Acts 4 in many ways. So maybe if you're listening to me this morning, maybe you have property, maybe you have land, maybe you have other assets that you could sell and, and funnel into the kingdom. Maybe you know people like that. This is the kind of way that the church was functioning and that I think will increasingly function again into the future. So there's this focus on the international mobility of the church spreading, penetrating. I love that thought of the gospel. It's like the opening titles of Dad's Army, if you're not familiar with that, from the UK. Just the arrows spreading across the land. Think of that in a good way, of course. Verse 18, just have a quick look at that because I think that this principle applies to what I've just said. 
This is what we'll come to next week. Verse 18 of our chapter today. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. You know, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, says a proverb somewhere. I think it's a proverb. So so there's the so there we go. There's the international what was and what I think will be again. And that's a sharp contrast to the sense of isolation that that many of us currently feel. This is why we need vision. Um, I think I want to just finish today with with having a quick look at Timothy. Now, Timothy is another example of, of the interdependence of the church. Interdependence meaning that this collection of money for the poor, that primary signature calling and emphasis of Paul um, himself, but it wasn't only money. It wasn't just financial. It was also the the sharing of ministry resources, the itinerant nature of people traveling, everything that went with that. Um, Paul, of course, was the par excellence of that in his multiple missionary journeys. But you also then have this reference to others like Timothy. Now, what I want to just stress, one thing here, it relates to what I was saying in the vlogs earlier this week about the faithfulness of the church that's being prepared for the Lord's return and the willingness and preparedness of the church to be despised and to be hated. If you just cast your eyes down, um, if you cast your eyes down to verse 10, look what he says there. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. We know from other passages that Timothy was, was he had a nervous, anxious disposition and he needed to be told on one occasion that he'd not re- received a spirit of timidity, but of the Holy Spirit of power and of sound mind and so on. Put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. If you remember in our last verse last time, in verse 58 of chapter 15, do you remember the, the big thing that we finished there with, that your work is not in vain? Verse 11, so let no one despise him. See that? What, what, an, what an odd thing there. Let no one despise him. It doesn't say let no brothers, no one in the church. It says let no one. And so what that what that says to me, just in conclusion today, is that that Timothy needed to know through the refreshing encouragement of the church that he'd been sent to that his work, his work, his travel, his his tiredness, his being spent wasn't in vain. But that the church also, and this is the core value, I think, of discipleship, that it's genuine, that proves true, you know, John 15, 7 and 8, that proves true, is this willingness to, um, I, on, on one hand, anticipate the despising, but also for, to resist the despising. Paul is saying here in this, I think, we're t- I think we're, the counsel of the Bible is for us to expect and anticipate despising the kind of anticipation that Jesus had on the cross to those who just couldn't understand what they were doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But there is there is an imperative here in the passage today where Paul says, don't let anyone, verse 10, don't let anyone despise Timothy. So let no one despise him. I had a dream last night and it was a quite a powerful dream. I think it was probably of the Holy Spirit. I was in a supermarket witnessing with the gospel booklets and as we've experienced in 
in real time here, we've people have defaced them and thrown them down and ripped them up and stuff, and I've I've resurrected them from the dust and put them back where they were, that kind of thing. But this tension, it provokes reaction. And in the dream I had last night, I was in a supermarket and I'd been putting book- booklets out. I do it every day now. Wherever I go, I put at least one seed into the ground. Um, and in the dream, I'd been in a supermarket and I'd noticed that some of the booklets had been defaced, spoiled, you know, provocation of somebody had been provoked spiritually, even if they didn't know it. And in the dream, I'd seen the person that had done it. It was a guy and I kind of, in the dream, I got, I got caught up into a conversation with him. It's like, what's going on? What, why have you done that? And it's like, you're just angry at, at the gospel, angry at God and angry at me, angry at me for being, you know, and um, in the dream, I, you know, I was asking, well, what do you believe then? What do you believe? And again, if you ask and engage with people after they've expressed their displeasure at something, it tends to go, it, it tends to go south quite quickly. And in the dream, the guy attacked me. He actually stabbed me in the head. It's quite violent, isn't it? But I think the significance to the head thing, anyway, as he'd stabbed me in the head, nothing had happened to me. I was, I was miraculously protected. But it was like the stabbing and attacking was the kind of zenith of his aggression towards God. You know, his aggression towards me is really just a rejection of Jesus. And as the dream, you know, went on, I was just praying as this was all going on. You know, we were in close quarters. We were kind of like tussling with each other. And not that I was attacking him in response. I was just resisting his attack, if that makes sense, rather than just cowering away into the background. And my, I put my hand on his chest. It was significant. My whole hand, not, not a gentle, like my whole hand was on his chest. And again, not to keep him at arm's length, but to bless, to minister to him, to minister the love of the Father to him as he's trying to stab me in the head. And as my hand is on his chest, the center of his chest, he begins to just soften. This murderous kind of like, hatred of God, hatred of the gospel, hatred of Jesus, hatred of me, the despising of me, just began to relax and soften. And then he began to just weep. And uh, I was continued to pray. My hand was continuing to be on the center of his chest. And I just, just asked for his permission. And this is important, I think. Important to ask for his permission if I could then pray for him personally. I don't need his permission to pray, but to pray for him in the way that I was about to. And he said, yeah. So one minute he's stabbing me in the head through my brain, through my mind. And the next minute I'm laying my hand on his heart to reveal the the love of the father to him. His girlfriend is standing by observing this in awe, grateful, witnessing this transformation of her boyfriend. There's a despising that is inescapable. We should, faithful, fruitful disciples must surely anticipate. That's why it's nerve-wracking sometimes because you know that there's going to be sometimes violent attack verbally, maybe even physically. But that in that moment, and this is where we engage in the supernatural reality that we're proclaiming, is that we know that God, God always is with us in that moment. And that's not to say he might, he'll always 
stop you being punched or slapped or abused verbally, but he's there. And he certainly can and often, I'm sure, does protect witnesses. But the work of the Lord includes the defense of the gospel as well as an anticipation of despising. This is what I'm saying, is that the work of the Lord that we know is not in vain and we should be encouraged is always fruitful. The word of God never returns void. The work of the Lord includes defense of the gospel as a primary expression of the love of the Father. It's important to hear what I've just said. The work of the Lord includes the defense of the gospel as a primary expression of the love of the Father. In the moments with people rejecting you, you feel it's personal, you feel the personal rejection. And it's tempting to respond from that place, but that's not, that's not the mentality. You should anticipate despising and anticipate attack and rejection. But, but in so doing, know that you've been entrusted. You have been entrusted with the love of the Father to reveal that to people. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so this defense of the gospel as a primary expression of the love of the Father is what was going on in my dream last night. And this is just how I want to finish this session today, thinking about the early church and the church today that's being prepared for the Lord's return. Just eight verses for you, okay, for you to note. Jude 1.3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There it is, to contend for the faith because we've been entrusted with this gospel message. Two, number two, 1 Peter 3.15, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And sometimes somebody asking you for a reason might look like a stab in the head. Let's hope it's not literal. Number three, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy. Remember that verse from a few weeks ago, pulling down all these nonsensical um, arguments against the gospel and against the thought of God. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Number four, Psalm 94.16, who will rise up for me against the wicked? asks the psalmist, who will rise up for me, or ask God rather, who, ri who will rise up for me against the wicked, who will take a stand for me against evildoers. It's easy to forget sometimes how wicked and evil it is to reject the gospel, to deface a gospel booklet, is, rep is representing hatred of God. How wicked and evil is that? Number five, Titus 1 verse 9, he must be devoted to the trustworthy message we teach. Then he, then he can use these accurate teachings to encourage people and correct those who oppose the word. Aquila and Priscilla corrected Apollos because he hadn't understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there are those who need to be corrected who are opposing the word. And of course, Paul constantly carried that memory in his life, which is why he called himself the chief of sinners or the least of all the apostles, because he had that memory. Number six, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 
Last two. Number seven, Philippians 1.16. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Number eight. And finally, Ephesians 5.11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Father, I do pray now, just as we straddle the early church in memory of of what's written here, this wonderful insight, Lord, please do pour revelation into our hearts and minds. And for everyone listening today who is considering this straddling of the church that was the faithfulness of the early apostolic church, despite the immaturity and how that compares to all the time in between, but the church as it's going to be, as we will be again before you come, prepared for your return, where the straight way has been prepared, the high places made low, the low places brought up, the crooked places straightened. Lord, I, I ask you to show us practically what that means for us now as we prepare, as we submit joyfully to your sanctifying preparation of each of our lives individually and for the church. As a whole, we pray again for the church. We pray for every deceived, bewitched congregation that you would show them truly what it is you're doing on the earth. Every church goer, every church leader bewitched with the notion that there's no need for repentance. We've had an organizational review. What's the problem? Lord, I pray you'd rebuke that. You'd rebuke that. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, I pray even now. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, for that bewitching effect on every congregation, every church leadership that doesn't understand the need for historic posture change. I pray where there is perishing, where there is something that looks like vision but actually isn't, Lord, I pray that you would penetrate that like you penetrated the nations around Jerusalem in that early period of history. And Lord, I I ask you now that you would give people peace today, give people courage today, give people powerful dreams of your spirit today that brings courage. And Lord, I pray for that, um, that vision of heaven and hell, the awareness, the gravity of eternity, the eternal destination of the unsaved. I pray that you would help us take small steps. I pray that as we stand in the gap between people that might even want to attack us, that you would fill us, so fill us with your presence that's faster than the speed of light. It's incomparably faster than the speed of light so that we don't even need the words or the wherewithal to know what that would require of us in the moment. In the moment, you will be there. In the moment, you will act. The devil is on the leash, your leash. And so we worship you now, Father. In the precious name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.